Welcome to the Binge Breakers Podcast. I'm Jacqueline. I am here to teach you how I overcame bulimia and my binge eating disorder, and how you can too. Through simple steps of mind management, repairing your relationship with yourself, understanding your habits, and intuitive eating. Disclaimer. This recording is not intended to be utilized as medical advice or a medical diagnosis. If you think you're in need of medical attention or treatment, please seek it immediately. This recording will also contain sensitive subjects such as binging and purging, weight and depression. Please listen at your own discretion and do what you think is best for you. Hello, everyone listening out there. I have a really special guest and it's kind of, I was just telling her it's kind of crazy since, you know, years ago when I was struggling with bulimia. I read her book. I'm sure you guys can guess who this is, but I have Catherine Hansen on the podcast today. What an honor. And she's the author of Brain of Revenge. She has a fabulous Instagram. She's helped what thousands, millions. I don't know, but I would think thousands. I hope. <laughs> yeah. Thousands. Yeah. You've helped a lot of people, but yeah. Right. I was writing and um, I was writing out goals and I was like, one day I want to help millions as well, which is such a big number, but you've yeah. certainly helped so, so many. So welcome to the show, Catherine. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, and for those of you guys, a lot of people who struggle with bulimia know who you are. It's like, I was saying when I did the book review on my podcast a while ago, it's almost a rite of passage to read Brain of Revenge in the bulimia world for a lot of people. But um for those that don't know, can you give a brief intro of your story and who you are? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wrote my book back in two, 2011, I actually had recovered back in 2005. So, you know, it's been, it's been a while. Um, I've been recovered for 17 years now. So um, after my recovery, I just felt this strong desire to share my story because it was so different than what I had been taught in therapy and with sort of the conventional forms of help that were out there just online or what I'd read. And, and the, my recovery was so different that I was like, wow, I have to tell people. Cause I was so you know, excited to be free. I was so just felt such a passion to help others with this. Cause I knew what it felt like to be there in that place where you just feel like you can't control yourself around food. It's just the constant binging and just being consumed by these urges. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess get started in the book. It took me a really long time to finish it, but, um, I started it like in 2006, like pretty soon after my recovery and, but I didn't finish till 2011 and also just didn't have the confidence to put it out until then, because I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, that there was this like, well, I haven't been recovered that long, but it felt so solid. Like even months after I quit, I was like, there's no way I would ever go back. And, you know, 17 years later, I'm, I just published a second edition and, um, just really try to help people understand bulimia in terms of the brain, really try to help empower them to take control and, and to just put an end to this. Yeah. I, what you said about not wanting to put out the book too soon after recovery, I relate to that a lot. And I put out my podcasting only a few years after I recovered myself and I had the same thoughts. But what I love about your book, when I listened to it, I didn't read it, but I listened, um, was that it felt pretty raw. Like a lot of the things felt very close to home. And I think sometimes, even though, of course, years later, I'm sure you remember lots of things that you struggled with when you were in that zone of bulimia. I think when you write it soon after your recovery, it's still fresh. And that's probably why it also resonates with so many people. Yeah. For sure. And that's why when I revisited it for the second edition, which I just put out, like, I didn't really change any of that raw, genuine story. Like I might reward some things, but 
like the fact that I started writing so soon after recovery, like these things were so fresh in my mind. My, I still had my journals. I still had everything, you know, mm-hmm. and I could never do that today. So I'm really glad that I started writing. And I think that's great that you did as well. Like that you started helping people pretty soon after your recovery, because you still um, remember what it's like to be in that place. Mm-hmm. And you can speak from, you know, a more personal perspective in that way. Absolutely. I was going to ask you at the end of the podcast, but I'll ask you now, since you mentioned it, what's different about the second edition? I haven't read it yet. Yeah. I mean, it's fundamentally kind of the same book as far as the message, as far as, you know, sharing my story. Um, the things I changed, I'll just sort of run through briefly is that in, in the first edition, I, I maybe ventured a little from my story and like really sticking to my story. And then if people need more forms of help, there's the brain of revenge recovery guide. I have a course, I have coaching, things like that, but it's just like sharing my story and then empowering people to use what works for my story. And then also to create their own story. Basically I'm more supportive of like different things work for different people. Um, but still sending that strong message that you absolutely can control this, but just that people recover on different timelines, use what works for you type of thing. So I think it lines up more to what I believe now, like there's things I've learned over the years. So I've sort of streamlined some things. People said the first book was repetitive. So I tried to cut out some repetition, you know, things to, things to improve it. Um, I got a new cover, things like that, but I'll, I'll, like the overall message is the same. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Critiques are always fun to get, but they're, they're necessary for improving. I didn't find exactly. it super repetitive. I did though. That brings us into kind of the first thing I want to talk to you about, which was urge surfing. Now, a lot of people that read the book, they found it extremely helpful. When I first read it too, I didn't recover till years later after reading it, but you were the first person to point out to me that there's these automatic pathways going on. There's mm-hmm. habitual things and the urge isn't necessarily this all-consuming thing that you can go through without necessarily acting upon it. And that even though I didn't entirely cement for me then, it was the first kind of puzzle piece in the right direction of, oh, maybe there's habits involved. Maybe it is somewhat within my control, which was obviously very vital. And it's vital for a lot of people to hear. But I find that um, some people, they still have trouble understanding how to actually go through an urge. So do you mind explaining a little bit more about that? How do people urge surf basically? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting. Like you use the word urge surf and that I did use that in my book and, um, but mine is a little, my approach is a little different than an urge surf. That's something I had learned in therapy as well. And Mm -hmm. it is very similar, but I'll kind of explain how my approach is a little different. Um, Surfing and urge traditionally is thought of as you just basically write it out. Like you try to kind of survive it. And I'm sure that people explain it in different ways, but the way Mm -hmm. I sort of came to understand it is that there's this big, powerful thing coming over you and you just have to like do what you can to get to the other side of it. And to me that it felt like unempowering a little bit in that I felt like the urge was taking control of me and that it's really what I wanted to do. And I had to really hold myself back from doing it. And I had to just get through it. Um, And the way I came to understand urges was sort of in a different way. And I changed my perspective surrounding the urges so that it no longer felt like I was trying to survive the urge. It no longer felt like the urge could sort of toss me about in the waves to kind of continue the analogy. But um, I learned to what I described as like, watch the waves from the shore. Um, and the waves being the urges, like realizing that those urges weren't really capable of moving me toward the food. They weren't capable of 
um, you know, driving me into action based on some basic brain science in that the urges come from this really primal part of your brain, this really habitual place. The, these urges are a lot of times from dieting, and I'm sure we'll get maybe more into that later, but, um, these, the urges actually didn't have the ability to sort of sweep me out to see and, and to the refrigerator, I guess you would say. Um, so I learned to observe them, like observe the urges with a very more, uh, much more detached perspective, like separating mm -hmm. myself from them, realizing those urges weren't truly me realizing they weren't calling from calling for anything I truly wanted. And in doing that, I was able to um, be a lot more calm it was, it didn't feel like I was trying to survive anymore. I mean, of course, emotions could arise and things like that, but, um, overall it just helped the urges feel a lot less uncomfortable. Yeah. No, sense? thank you. That makes total sense. You explained it really beautifully. And I like that you clarified what, that it's different than urge serving. Cause I think people will sometimes, I think a lot of people had that misconception that, that you were more of a fan of urge surfing. I probably just didn't do my homework, honestly. No, it's, it's totally okay. <laughs> but, and I actually use the term in my books, um, dismissing urges, like you sort of mm. dismiss them as, as you like, they're meaningless to you. They're powerless. You're they're powerless to make you act. They're sort of these harmless messages. So it's like mm -hmm. dismissing them. And actually, um, a, a coach that's working with people now with the brain over binge approach, my coach, Julie Mann uses the term allow, you allow the urges, mm -hmm. you, you allow them to be there. You, you don't fight them. You don't resist them. So I think either one of those terms, dismissing, allowing, it might help you sort of just reframe the experience you're having. So you mm -hmm. don't feel like you're just trying to survive it. And, um, does that make sense? Yeah, no. And that's what I was going to say is that it's, um, people think that thoughts, you know, changing just simple thoughts and how you phrase things is kind of woo, or it's not actually mm -hmm. that helpful, but using different language around it and shifting your perspective around things can make a world of difference because it's not like when you found, when you kind of discovered how these urges were working in your brain, it's not like you fundamentally changed that you were still experiencing the same urge, but yeah. your perspective on it had changed. And that allowed you to remain more detached, or as you say, dismissing it and be the observer versus being swept out to sea, which is, yeah. Yeah. Your coach, um, she's from the life coach school, right? Yes. Like yeah. This. They, um, with, I was going to say with, uh, the allowing the urge, I love that concept because they teach it within the life coach school too. And that I think oh, nice. really cemented in my recovery of like, Oh, you can allow the urge. You can dismiss an urge instead of fighting with it or grappling mm -hmm. with it or being, being swept out to sea with it and having no power until it's over, which is an awful feeling to have. Yeah. And I love what you said about shifting your perspective, really changing things. Cause people are always looking for, what do I do? Like, what mm -hmm. do I need to do to get through this? And there was nothing really different that I did. I mean, in, yeah. when I was sort of in that um, conventional therapy, I was always looking to do something. I was looking to find the emotion that was behind it maybe, and try to solve for that or finding the problem that had triggered it or, or whatever. I'm trying to distract myself, trying to, you know, do any number of alternate activities. And like, without that fundamental change in perspective, all of that just felt completely impossible. But then once I shifted my perspective, then I could sort of do anything that I thought would be helpful, um, to get through it, but it wasn't, um, it didn't feel like I had to do those things. Like it, it was an option. So I think that's helpful for people out there to, to hear is that the change in perspective is much more important than what you actually do during the urge. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your thoughts are very, very powerful. How you see things are powerful. And I always say, if you don't believe that you can recover, you're never necessarily going to try. If you don't, if you believe that it has power over you, then no matter what you do, you do, it's always going to end probably in the same way. Cause eventually you might give in or eventually it's just going to take over you. Um, mm. which is, it's crazy to think that your thoughts impact how you function in the world so yeah. much, but they really, really do. You, um, talked to you briefly mentioned that we might talk about nutrition. Um, I wasn't going to ask you too much about nutrition, but I always like to tell people, um, it's very hard to do anything with urges if you aren't getting adequate nutrition and yeah. those sort of things. How did you, how are you, what's a good question? How did you tackle food and getting things to eat while you were trying to recover and going through urges? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I was um, sort of fortunate in that I had already done that piece before I learned um, about the brain and how to see the urges in a new way. That piece was basically in place for me already because I had been to a nutritionist. I knew kind of how much I needed to eat. I was committed to giving up dieting by that point. Like I had fully seen that dieting was leading to problems for me. I had fully seen that, that the restriction was kind of causing all this. And um, I mean, obviously in therapy, I learned that other things were causing in emotions, things like that, um, which I came to, I'm getting on a tangent here, but I came to see <laughs> that that wasn't the case either. Um, so I was already eating in a relatively normal way by the time I did learn to see urges in a new way and stop acting on them. Um, the only thing, thing I was doing still was like, purging by over-exercising. I was kind of restricting on the day after binges, but once I stopped the binging, like I, I was eating in a relatively normal way and was committed to that. Now that's not the case for everyone. And that's sort of in, in the second edition, I, I bring in that you may need help nutrition, nutritionally, you may need extra support as far as help helping you to give up dieting, to implement adequate eating habits. Cause it's so important. Like you can't dismiss an urge, allow an urge. If you're starving, like mm -hmm. you cannot do that. Your brain is not going to be in a state where you can use your higher cognitive powers to override that primitive drive. If that primitive drive is just based in like starvation and a real need of food. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's hard, if not sometimes impossible to override yeah. those things. So thank absolutely. you for the clarification. And yeah, I think for you and your journey, it's so interesting because you had done so much preemptive work before mm -hmm. actually dismissing those urges. So I, I had a similar experience, not necessarily as long of a journey as you, but I had about six to seven months before I stopped binging for good. When I was doing work emotionally and also eating more regularly, even though it wasn't completely, I was still doing some restriction things and overexercising things like you were discussing too. Mm -hmm. But that work really built up to me eventually being able to dismiss an urge and observe the urge without yeah. it being this big deal. So people kind of hear, I think sometimes our stories and they're like, it just worked like that. And they aren't necessarily seeing maybe the buildup that led to that as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think the eating piece is really important. I think some people can stop binging maybe in a day, but it takes them that everybody's journey is different, obviously, but the binging is almost sometimes the more clear cut behavior to stop. 
um, mm-hmm. than the dieting, the restricting, the the body obsessions, weight obsessions, things like that, which which does need to unravel in order for you to consistently eat adequately to um, allow the urges to go away, to decondition the habit in the brain, to you know tame those survival instincts. You just have to be eating enough, and you have to consistently eat enough. Like if you don't sort of address these weight obsessions, these dieting obsessions, you could tip back into dieting and then reignite the whole process. So it's just such a fundamental part of making the change, um, making the change and then making the change last. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of brings me into exercising during recovery. Now you did the extra over exercising stop when the binging stopped for you. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I hated the over-exercising, like hated it. I mean, I'm sure people feel that way about the self-induced vomiting. Like it's, it's a terrible behavior. Like it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's not healthy. It like does so much damage to your body. And I was doing it because I felt so out of control during the binges that I felt like I had to do something to make up for it. I had to, you know, and I got in this habit of over-exercising. So yeah, I mean, when the binges stopped, I stopped that desire for the massive amounts of exercise. Um, I talked about in the book that there were some circumstances that could sort of bring up a desire for maybe an unhealthy form of exercise. And that's, um, I think a lot of it was just based in remnants of the old habit. Like if Mm. I would overeat a little bit, then I might have thoughts like, oh, you should just run some extra miles or things like that. Um, And I would just do the same thing with those those, um, urges that I would do with the binge urges. It's just kind of realize, okay, that's a habit. That's my brain producing some old thoughts and just dismiss them. And I was able to mm-hmm. keep exercising a healthy, you know, healthy place in my life. That's really good to know, because I, w- I was going to ask you about the overexercising, but I wasn't sure if it was even a problem for you after you stopped binging, since I was the same way. Like I, even though sometimes I would still have urges to purge and that's the thing that's probably lingered the most uh, after recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't a big issue for me after recovery because I didn't have as much of a need to do it in the first place, but it's good to know that you not good for you, I guess. I'm sorry that you struggled with it, (laughs) but it's good to know that you still kind of had that issue of, Oh, we overate, maybe we should go over exercise. And I love what you said about applying the same thing to binge urges as you would exercise urges. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes me think about how the skills that you learn of dismissing an urge are so applicable to different things in life, not just the binge urges in itself. Yeah, for sure. And it's so many things. I mean, it's obviously not the cure for everything, but once I sort of learned this, that sort of you're not your thoughts and feelings, like all your thoughts and feelings and things that go through your body and brain aren't you. Like you can, you have the ability to sort of um, decide which of those messages you want to believe, decide which ones you want to follow. Like, again, not the cure for everything, but it can fundamentally change so many things. Yeah. It feels like a new superpower and yeah, I yeah. agree. It's not the cure for everything, but you literally are like, sure. I just discovered a new secret of the universe. What's going <laughs> exactly. on? Um, yeah. So how do you, um, just to give more details since you didn't struggle as much when people are over-exercising and have that tendency to over-exercise, would do you have any advice that you regularly give them other than what you just said? Um, I, I do think, yeah, like like I was saying before, apply that same detachment concept and realize that it does become habitual. Like that drive to get that, you know, rush of adrenaline and things like body chemistry and whatever happens when you're exercising, like you're getting this burst of sort of feel good brain chemicals and things like that. And you can get hooked on that a bit. So Mm. it's about like taking care of yourself during those times and, and realizing that, um, 
truly focusing on health. Like I think people will think, oh, I have to do this because it's healthy and I have to exercise, but it's actually not like you tip into a place where it's very detrimental to your health and even dangerous. So to realize that your, your brain is not like your enemy by encouraging you to do this because it's just a habit you've gotten into over time, but that now you can, you can start to take care of yourself in ways that truly are healthy. It's sort of like just becoming the, the adult for yourself. Like when you're younger, you have an adult to tell you, okay, this is not healthy. And you get to be that for yourself now. And you get to say, okay, I'm having these desires that just aren't in line with what I truly want for my life. And you can um, step back from those and refocus your mind on what you actually want and what's really important to you in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you said about like your brain is not your enemy. And I was just talking with a client this morning about how it's important not to shame yourself for the initial reactions that come up. So it makes, like you said, it makes total sense why you'd want to exercise like that, why you do want to keep on doing it. And it's not bad, but realizing that it's not helping you in certain ways and it can be damaging. I think that's the next step is, you know, actually fully seeing how it's creating a negative in your life and understanding that. Cause I think a lot of us, we know these behaviors are bad, but then we still do it. And part of that's habitual part of it might be because you see some sort of little benefit or you're not completely sold on it. So I think understanding the full picture, and then, like you said, becoming an adult, um, in your own brain and then using the detachment, all really wonderful advice. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, so I wanted to ask two more things. One, well, the end, I wanted to ask about your book. We already kind of talked about it, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, what, life was like after recovery and did you ever have any kind of it seemed like you were pretty confident that you were never going back yeah I mean truly I was and from very early on like even when I was still having urges it was like I knew they weren't me I knew I didn't want to act on them ever again and eventually it shifted to where binging like seemed the exact opposite of appealing I think that's something people don't realize about recovery is that there will be a point where you will not want to binge by any stretch of the imagination. It will seem like just the opposite of pleasure. And Mm -hmm. I think that some people think you'll always kind of have this desire and this will always be part of you and you'll always sort of have to fend it off. And I think um, it's really encouraging to hear from, you know, me or other people who have recovered that have the same experience that you just don't want it anymore. And that's a wonderful place to get to because it's like, it's total freedom, you know? the I find other it things when people they uh they I find it hard to give up bulimia because they think you, I'm never going to be able to binge again I'm never going to be have these yeah. things again and it's like mm-hmm. yeah but you don't realize that recovering removes the desire to binge yeah. in the first place and like you said yeah. it's freedom you don't want it anymore yeah that that's really profound what you said because there there's that fear oh my gosh I'm never going to get to do this again but yeah, it totally eases that fear to realize, yeah, but I, but I won't want to. So, mm-hmm. um, it, yeah, I'm sorry mean, for like, just trying to find my thought process, but mm-hmm. yeah, like as far as life after, after recovery, I think one huge thing for me to learn was that life is not perfect after recovery. And that's something mm-hmm. I feel like is the most important thing for me to say up front, because I feel like that helped me back, held me back for a long time thinking that, not necessarily, not necessarily that it would be perfect, but that I would sort of have things figured out and that I would, you know, be able to cope with my life and my problems and my emotions really well. And that's what I was trying to learn in therapy. Like if I learned to do that, 
then I would no longer want to binge when really the only way to make myself not want to binge was to continuously not act on that desire. Then that Mm -hmm. desire went away. So it took away the desire to binge. It took away the habit. Everything else was still there. The emotions, you know, problems, things like that, except the emotions and problems that the binging itself caused, which was a lot, like so many, like the, the time, the energy, that it takes up the negative effect it has on relationships, the negative mm-hmm. effect it has on like confidence, you know, you remove all that guilt, all that shame. You just immediately have more confidence. You have more, um, you're less isolated. You have more of an ability to connect with other people to go after things you want to do, even if like you fail <laughs> at all of that, which yeah. I have, I mean, like not everything, like, obviously, you know, there's been some great things in my life, but if you like make your recovery contingent on you being successful, on you not having bad things happen, on you not failing, on you, you know, then you're never going to be free of this because life will never be perfect. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's just huge. Yeah. No, it's funny. Like we think that, um, like someone the other day commented and said, you know, I just want to be happy. And recovery will help you, I think in that, but you aren't just going to simply be happy once recovery is over. But like you're saying, it removes so many of the problems that come with it. It's like you release this ankle weight. I'm kind of curious because again, your story was so similar to mine when you had that chapter about how your dad took you over to go live with your boyfriend. I had the Mm -hmm. almost exact same experience. It was so weird reading it. It's like, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't a unique experience, but I was (laughs) slipping back into binging and, um, I could just, I was struggling at the time when it happened, but I went on to live with my boyfriend for about three years and, you know, in bulimia and it affected my relationship so much. So awful. Mm -hmm. How did your relationship change after Mm -hmm. you, um, recovered? Yeah. I mean, I think it's another example of how life isn't perfect after recovery, but I think like getting into that relationship as a bulimic, like it wasn't necessarily like my authentic self. I didn't know who I was. I didn't like, so it definitely changed in that I did have more of the ability to connect um, and more of the ability to, um, you know, just be in the moment with someone. I didn't have that drain on my time. So Mm -hmm. I say this, but I also realized there were problems there in that relationship that maybe I didn't see because I was so distracted by binging and purging. And I wasn't purposefully doing those things to distract myself, but it does distract you from your life. It does, you know, cloud your judgment on a lot of things. So when I stopped binging, it wasn't like, oh, now I have this perfect relationship. It's like, okay, I can better function in a relationship, but there are some (laughs) problems I may be ignored. So (laughs) there was that. Um, So in a way, it's just- So it's like, I wish I could sit here and say that, like that makes everything better, but that's just another example of, if I would have thought, okay, I need to have perfect relationships to be recovered, I would have never been recovered. And I stayed in that relationship a long time, but I'm divorced now. So, so another mm-hmm. example of how life is hard and challenging and um, you've, but like getting through all that stuff as a non-bulimic is so much easier than trying to get through it as a bulimic. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. It makes total sense. I always say, which sounds super woo, but not having bulimia in your life allows you to be, allows you to be more present with both mm-hmm. the bad and the good. 
Yes. And first of all, I think it makes the good so much richer because you're there for it. When you're numbing things out, when you're distracting with bulimia, I think it, it numbs out the bad sometimes, but it also numbs out the good and you're not Mm -hmm. really there for it. Then, like you said, the bad that you're experiencing, you get a lot better handling that bad. And it's still just as painful, if not more painful, maybe because you're more aware of it, you're more there for it. But, um, I'd rather handle something being functional for it and being able to be there instead of just not barely functioning myself. And also, you know, with relationships is a whole side tangent, but a lot of people think, oh, relationship ending is a failure. Relationship ending is not a good thing, but I've talked to, I've seen a lot of people that go through relationships where it ends and it's a peaceful thing that happens. And like, it was the right thing. So you, you know, I don't want to get into your marriage or anything like that, but you, um, you going through bulimia recovery allowed you to figure out what you needed most in a relationship, which is a beautiful thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can make choices from your authentic self and not based on like what you feel like you need to do because of your eating disorder or you make, yeah, when you make decisions with your eating disorder, it's just so much harder because it's Mm -hmm. always, like I said, clouding your judgment. So you can make make authentic, you know, choices. And, um, it's interesting because I just did podcast episode 99 on my podcast and my boyfriend interviewed me about my new addition. So like, there's also good on the other side of, of it. So you can have more authentic connections. You can, um, so I just wanted to mention that. So it won't be a, such a downer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a downer. And I'm sure yeah. like, I, I eventually want to rope my boyfriend into being on the podcast. He's like a little yeah. resistant to it, but eventually I'll get him <laughs> on here. Cause I love yeah to hear their perspective. I mean, I guess your boyfriend never knew you when you were struggling with it, but no, um, never. I mean, yeah. we haven't been together a super long time, but, um, it, it's so, I guess it's just so great to approach relationships as a recovered person. And, and I've, you know, been recovered a long time now. So I've had an opportunity to just make all, all sorts of, all sorts of connections and you're just so much more of your authentic self. And like, just encourage everyone out there that you have so much to offer. And when you're stuck in an eating disorder, you're not able to pursue the things that sort of light you up or the things that can give back to other people. And gosh, everyone just has so much to offer and people with eating disorders. Like I know, you know, as well, like working with so many smart people, so many Mm -hmm. incredible human beings that just have so much to give and just taking that struggle away, you get to, you get to do all that. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Well, the only other thing I have to ask you is you think you already gave, gave, usually ask people, you know, is there anything else you'd say? And so I would, I'd hate to do that. Uh, but is there anything else that you would say to anyone out there struggling? If there's anything you feel like we didn't cover? Sure. First of all, I appreciate all the great questions. I think we've covered a lot. I think that's Mm -hmm. been very helpful. I hope. And, um, I, I mean, I know it sounds like try it, but like, please like, you absolutely can do this. I mean, I know what it feels like to be in that place where you feel controlled by your urges. You feel like you can't stop the shame that comes afterward. You feel like I'm never going to be able to lead a normal life, but like there's been so many people that have felt this way. And I think anyone who has recovered has probably felt that way at one point or another. And it doesn't minimize at all what you're going through. Like it's, it's awful. I've been there, but you absolutely can do this and just sort of take the first step that you feel like will help you get there. And, and I know it can be, um, seem overwhelming with sort of all the information that's out there in my approach. I, I bring it down to two basic goals and that's to dismiss 
the urges, or if you want to say allow them, detach from them, however you want to say it, dismiss urges, and then eat adequately. And we've both we've addressed both of those things on the podcast today. So like the one thing, if you can do one thing to move yourself forward, think of it in terms of those two goals. What would help mm-hmm. you dismiss the urges? What would help you eat adequately and implement those things? And it can really help you sort of streamline what you need to do, help make things less overwhelming. Um, and then get, you know, get whatever help you need along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think boiling it down to, cause so many people, like you said, they get incredibly overwhelmed with what they need to do. And so boiling it down to basics of eat enough, dismiss urges or whatever else they need to do. But those are two core fundamental things. Absolutely. And like we were discussing earlier, dismissing urges applies to so many different things. So it's really a good power to get down right yes, away. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Yeah, no, like you're saying, I think this podcast episode has been full of, I was going to say nutrients, but <laughs> full of <laughs> my nutrients, I guess, uh, really helpful yeah. insights from you. Um, it's been lovely talking with you. Where can people find you? Um, basically the easiest place is my website, brainoverbinge.com. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of things there. You can learn more about the books. You can learn more about my podcast. I have a blog. Um, you can also get a free ebook there as well. It's called the Brain Over Binge Basics. So if you just go mm-hmm. to the website, it's on the homepage. Just sort of lay out the fundamentals of the approach just to see if it's maybe right for you. And yeah, that's about it. Yeah, awesome. And you're you're on Instagram too, and it's just Brain Over Binge as well, right? Yes, it's, yeah. <laughs> brain Over Binge was taken. So it's brain underscore over underscore binge. Someone took Brain Over Binge? I mean, it was a while ago and it was already gone and maybe I should have fought more for it at the time, but I'm like, I'll just put the underscores and it'll be fine. That's and now hilarious. like, it, it's too late to change. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I thought like, you know, you originally had brain intervention and someone took it. I was like, oh, how no, awful. <laughs> it just wasn't available when I went to use it. So sneaky. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, but no, I follow her on Instagram too. And it's, um, your podcast is informative, but I, I tend to follow your Instagram page the most closely because that's where I'm okay. typically at as well. Yeah. Um, it's kind of late yeah. in the game getting on Instagram. That's probably why the name was taken, but, um, I've really tra- worked hard on trying to provide helpful information there. So I'm glad you like you it. You do. Yeah, it's it's very like the quotes that you post and everything very insightful. Which I think that Instagram now it's it's a lot of reels too, and I try to post those as well. You can get kind of caught up in them, but I still love mm-hmm. pages that post solid content that is tangible mm-hmm. that you can read. It's kind of a break for your mind, and it's definitely yeah. helpful to people. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I'll let you go. Thank you for being here, Catherine. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time with me. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. All right, bye everyone listening. <laughs>